Let me, let me pray with you for a couple minutes as we begin. It always astounds us to think about the fact, Lord Jesus, that our King would die for us. We try to put our gratitude into words, our praise into an expression that's acceptable to you, and we do our best, but frankly, it feels woefully short, and yet we do it because you deserve to be glorified. You deserve to be exalted and lifted up. Thank you for changing our life. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the empowerment of the Spirit. We talked and read earlier, and Louise did, from the concept of being holy because you're holy. And we understand we can't do that on our own. Impossible. We need empowerment from on high. And you promised in the book of Luke that they should hang out in Jerusalem and you'll receive power from on high. Power to lead a holy life. Power to lead a life where we serve you in a way that makes a difference for eternity. And so grateful we are for the fact that the king came and died for us. And that you walk with us each day. And Lord, as we explore another element of that walk each day today, would you just speak to hearts, speak beginning with my heart, but to each heart in a way that only you can. And we invite you to do this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Someone has said this. There are those who suggest that a reoccurring problem from generation to generation is a self-centered disrespect for authority both human and divine. Others might or might not agree, but many think disrespect for authority, both human and divine, here in North America is at an all-time high. And I would assume that the author would be talking about all the generations, right from birth, right through death. Respect for those in authority. Even when you don't agree, even when they don't deserve it. Last fall, Debbie and I were driving up Métis Trail, and uh, I was thinking about some stuff. Wasn't paying attention. Boom, get pulled over. And the policeman came up to me and said, uh, Mr. Dixon, uh, got you on the radar gun. You're driving in excess of the speed limit. And he said, do you have a good reason for that? And I thought about what I'd been thinking about, and I said, well, I have a good reason. He said, do you have a good reason for this? And I said, a reason, but probably not a very good one. And so he said, here's a ticket. And you may shake your head at me or even laugh at me, but actually it was really quite easy to respect that police officer that day and the authority he had as he gave me the ticket. He was very polite. He was very fair, he was very firm, and I was totally guilty. And he was just doing his job, and when I was thinking about it later, he's really there and doing that to help protect me and to protect others that I might hurt. And his last words were, drive safe, Mr. Dixon. Quite easy to respect authority like that. When I was in grade nine, 
first day of class in a new semester. I walked into the classroom, and it was an algebra class. Teacher is sitting at his desk, sitting right there, and I was in about the second or third seat in one of the middle aisles. And he starts to talk and talk about what the semester is going to be like. And he talks for like five minutes. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, I, I don't think I'd ever met this teacher before. All of a sudden, he said a very demeaning thing to me. And everybody was just shocked. Nobody laughed. Some of them looked at me. Some of them were just silent. And after he was done hurting me, he went on and to pick on two other students in the class and demean them. And again, nobody laughed, and it was just silent. Before the next class, those two people dropped out of the class and never came back. But I'm kind of stubborn, so I stayed in for the whole semester. And you know, I've had many, many teachers in my life, and the vast, vast bulk of them were good people, invested in their students, invested in their craft, and really there to try and move people down the court. But that guy was just a jerk. How do you show proper respect? To someone who misuses their authority like that? How do you show proper respect to someone that you either don't agree with or frankly doesn't deserve? If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 9. We're continuing this series of messages called In the Beginning God. And they're opening chapters of Genesis where we have moved through for a number of weeks now, and today we're on the third time looking at the story of Noah. And this morning, the title of today's message is, What Do You Say to a Drunken Ex-Sailor? What do you say to a drunken ex-sailor? And it's a very interesting little story we're going to read today. I just encourage you to notice the similarities to the creation account and the time in the garden. Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. They were, these were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, and when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a, a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son has done, he said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brother. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territories of Japheth 
May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. Did you notice some of the similarities to the creation account? You have this family from which all of human life flows. And they plant and they care for a garden. And Noah was a man who worked in the garden, and he took some of the fruit of the garden, which God had provided for him for their enjoyment and for their provision. And he takes this good gift that God has given him, and he uses it in a way he shouldn't. And he misuses it. And we often do this. God gives us good gifts. He's a father that loves to give good gifts. And we often will take these good gifts that in and of themselves are either just neutral or good, and we misuse them. And Noah creates an alcoholic beverage that he abuses and drinks too much of and gets drunk. And we don't know why uh, he did this, why he drank to excess. It could be any number of reasons. It could be that he was dealing, even though it was some period after the flood, maybe he was dealing with survivor's guilt. Why did all of them die and I'm alive? We don't know. Or maybe he just was making really poor, sinful choices. Drinking to excess and getting drunk. But whatever the reason, there was some really serious consequences that attached for many people as a result of his choices and then their choices. And the Bible is just very clear about this. It says, with no ambiguity, don't get drunk. It says this, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, don't get drunk, which leads to debauchery. Don't get drunk, which leads to debauchery. And this story is just a clear illustration of the downfalls of getting drunk. Getting drunk encourages us to do things and to say things that hurt innocent people. I just read the other day that four People a day in Canada die as a result of drinking and driving. I think about my own extended family. How many times over the years I've seen real heartache from someone drinking to excess. And so God says don't ever mess with alcohol in a way that could lead to you getting drunk or lead to addiction. And again, this is just another one of those very clear illustrations of God having our best interests in mind. He always has our best interests in mind. Even when we don't understand why he says what he says, even when we don't agree with what he says, he has our best interests in mind. He has our back. And this is why the Bible says, don't get drunk. It leads to a lack of self-control, which is in direct contrast. You know that Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk, which leads to debauchery. It says, then the last half of the verse says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. In fact, it's the idea there is keep on being filled with the Spirit. It's an ongoing thing. And when we're filled with the Spirit, things begin to happen in our life that I talked about in my prayer as we began. One thing is, is we're given power to live a holy life, which is exhibited and seen through Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. 
And there's nine elements to the fruit of the Spirit. Spiritual gifts are plural because everyone receives at least one, if not multiple, spiritual gifts. But not all of them, or any one in particular. But the fruit of the Spirit has nine elements that when you're filled with the Spirit, increasingly you begin to reflect Christ more and more in these nine areas. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Getting drunk leads to a decided lack of self-control. And Noah, who is a righteous man, who's in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter of, of the people of great faith, blows it completely and gets drunk. And the effects of his sin are felt for generations to come. He drinks too much. And we're not totally sure of all the details. We just see what we see in the passage. But it appears that he stumbles into his tent, or maybe he was drinking in his tent the whole time. We don't know. And he drinks so much that he ends up naked in his tent. And he's not aware of what's happening to him. And Ham, his son, probably has either heard him or seen him drinking. And he goes into his father's tent. And we don't know for sure what Ham did in there. We just know it's not good. In verse 22, it says, he saw his father's nakedness. In the Hebrew, that word saw literally means gazed with satisfaction. He gazed with satisfaction at his father's nakedness. And so we don't know if there was some kind of a sexual perversion going on there, but more, probably not, more likely, he was looking at him in a mocking disrespectful way and then he goes out and he tells this to his brothers and at the very least he went about this in a way that's profoundly disrespectful yeah what dad did was very wrong but what he did was wrong too and he treats his dad in a very disrespectful way which was and would be a big no-no in our culture but it was a really big no-no in that culture and serious consequences attached to that kind of behavior. And they all understood that. This was not him making a mistake. This was him making some deliberate choices to disrespect his dad. And even though some of the details, we're not exactly sure of the exact details, we take note of the contrast in reactions between Ham and the other two brothers. The two brothers hear what's happened with their dad. And they go and they find a garment. And they put it over their shoulders and turn their head away. And they back into the tent. Think, if you've ever gone into a tent, think how awkward that would be. They're backing into the tent. They, they try and find out where he is. Maybe, they, maybe he's making little noises or something. And they, they're keeping their head turned away. And they move over to him. And they use the garment without looking to cover him up completely. And even though his behavior was dishonorable, they treated him in a respectful way. And Noah sleeps it off and wakes up. And he's informed of what has happened. In a prophetic way, he pronounces a curse on Ham's offspring and a blessing on his other two sons. 
Well, some of us look at that and we go, hmm, why does he put a curse on Ham's offspring? It's really on Ham, but it, it seems to be mostly pointed at Ham's offspring. It's on Ham. It's really on himself in a sense too because who you had as offspring was really a big, big deal back then. So it's really a curse on himself a bit as well as Ham, but it seems to be primarily directed at the offspring. And at first glance, that doesn't seem fair. But I say that it's prophetic in the sense that it predicted what the relationship was going to be like. Ham the dad more than likely modeled this approach in life to his offspring of disrespecting authority. And then the generations to come decided to follow in dad's footsteps. And sometimes we hear this idea in scripture of people saying the punishment for my sin will go down through the generations. But listen carefully to what the scripture says about this. In Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7, it says, And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. He doesn't leave the guilty, not the innocent, the guilty unpunished. Numbers chapter 14 says this, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. The guilty are punished, not the innocent. And so when I sin, I model for my children something that can quite readily become generational. Now again, they make their own choices and they'll be punished for those choices, but what example am I setting for them? This is very common in the narrative of the stories of families in Genesis, where you'll see generational sin taking place. Very serious stuff. So when we, when we make choices, we're not just making choices for ourselves. And our example invites the next generation down a path. And so very clearly, you see here, we have this capacity to bless the next generation or to curse that generation. So you don't sin in a vacuum. Having said that, there's every possibility for the next generation to make other choices. And God is very quick to be compassionate. He's extremely slow in punishing sin. He's slow to be angry. He's quick to forgive. And so Shem and Japheth honor and show a high view of human dignity and respect towards their dad, even when his actions wouldn't suggest that he necessarily deserved it. What does that mean? What does it mean to show respect? 
It's more than just an outward manifestation. It's more than just outwardly saying yes, but inwardly seething towards them, passively, aggressively, grudgingly saying yes. It's more than that. It's not just a simple yes. You know, most parents are good parents. Not perfect. (laughs) Far from it. But most parents love their children and try their best with their kids. But let me ask, how do we honor parents or any other people in authority in our life that are not honoring? That we don't agree with or seemingly they don't really deserve. How do you do that? Because it's very clear in scripture we should do this. We see this story here. We read in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. um, the The Ten Commandments. The moral code is laid out by God. Which is reaffirmed in the New Testament. And the fifth of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, says this, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. It doesn't say honor your father and mother that deserve it. It says honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and we see this idea of it going beyond a simple yes. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So this is the idea of saying yes, when mom and dad say you should do something. But then it says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, As you'll always hear me say when I talk about things like this, God never expects or asks us to ignore the pain you feel from parents who have dishonored you. To honor someone never, ever means that we dismiss consequences or tolerate sin. We deal with consequences and we don't tolerate sin. As I always say, there's not one place in this book where God winks at sin. Not one place. He never says it's not a big deal. He never says, ah, we'll let that one go. It's never like that. So we're not saying that. So if we were to pick an extreme example of a parent is sexually abusing their child, that child should call for help, call the police, have that parent arrested. Or go to someone that can help them. Now let's say there's a much smaller issue that mom and dad are doing. The invitation, as there is for any biblical believer, is to respectfully speak the truth in love. In a way that still is honoring to them. In the normal course of events, how do I honor one in authority and over me? In particular, let's talk about a parent, because this is the context of this story. Of course, it changes over time. And so as a young child, and if you're a young child here today, it simply means to obey. 
It means to be a person who's willing to say yes. And you understand that mom and dad are trying to teach you right from wrong. And when they discipline you, when they get after you, it's because they're trying to do right by you. They're trying to teach you what's right and what's wrong. And so mom and dad says, do it, and I do it. As a child begins to get older, and I'm not going to put ages on this, because every child matures at different rates. Sometimes it has a lot to do with when they're able to start thinking in the abstract. There's still the element of obedience that's going on there, but as you get older, you're becoming more and more responsible, and you understand this concept more and more. And wise parents will give their children more and more opportunity to make choices, to teach them how to make good choices. And so as you give them those choices, you see them begin to grow, and they'll make mistakes at points, but they begin to grow. And growing children increasingly go from obedience to becoming more cooperative, outwardly and inwardly, and more and more respectful. So that that child will say things like, you know, I could hide this from my parent and act like I'm doing it, but I want to be respectful and I want to be a healthy part of the family unit. And even though there'll be conflict, there isn't a human relationship anywhere that doesn't have conflict. There will be conflict. Every relationship has it. In the midst of the conflict, you are responsible response, respectful rather, even when mom and dad don't deserve it, even when they, you know, really have not come across perhaps the way they should. I just want to say to the children and teenagers here, don't ever for one moment get the thought in your mind that God thinks it's okay for you to shame or demean your parents in private or in public. And this story is a very clear illustration of that. Don't ever get that idea. And if you've done that, you need to repent of your sin and apologize to your parents. And parents, let me say to you, you are not doing your kids any favors if you let them get away with that. You really aren't. Even though mom and dad may have a different opinion on a given subject, and you go to them in, in private and say, I don't necessarily agree with you about this stuff. At the end of the day, even though you don't agree, you say, because you say so, I will. And I will have your back when we leave the room. That is is respect and cooperation. What about as an adult, when you become an adult yourself? Well, it transitions from obedience to really treasuring your parents. And as an adult ourselves, we begin to appreciate more and more the sacrifice and the service that our parents put into our development. And in some ways, as parents especially become elderly, the children become the parents. 
and we care and we sacrifice for them like they did for us when they need our help. And it's really sad in our culture because I think more and more those that are older are receiving less and less respect. And Christians need to be at the forefront of people who show respect to those in authority. Honor and respect. I want to read a portion to you from Grimm's fairy tale. There was a little old man. His eyes blinked and his hands trembled. When he ate, he banged his silverware around because he couldn't quite control it. He missed his mouth with the spoon as often as not and dribbled a bit of his food on the tablecloth. Now he lived with his married son, having nowhere else to live, and his son's wife didn't like the arrangement. I can't have this, she said. It interferes with my right to happiness. So she and her husband took the old man, led him to the corner of the kitchen, and there they set him on a stool and gave him his food in an earthenware bowl. From then on, he always ate in the corner, blinking at the table with wistful eyes. One day his hands trembled rather more than usual, and the earthenware bowl fell and broke. If you are a pig, said the daughter-in-law, you must eat out of a trough. So they made him a little wooden trough, and he got the, his meals in that. Now it so happened that this couple had a four-year-old son of whom they were very fond. And one evening, the young father noticed his boy playing intently with some bits of wood, and he asked him what he was doing. The little boy said, I'm making a trough, smiling up for approval, to feed you and mama out of when I get big. The man and his wife looked at each other and didn't say anything. Then they cried a little. Then they went to the corner and took the old man by the arm and led him to the table. They sat him in a comfortable chair and gave him his food on a plate. And no one ever scolded him again when he spilled or broke things. 